Well, hey, everybody. I know I say this each week, but whether you're here in the room or joining us online, I'm truly honored to have you along for the ride. Now, you may not realize it, but this is a historic day here at Keystone Community Church because in the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to conclude the longest series in our history. We made it. <laughs> It's called Virtual Israel, and for those of you joining us for the first time, uh, you should know that the past seven months or so, um, we've spent unpacking content that I've been preparing uh, for upcoming trips to Israel that a whole bunch of us plan to take in the next few years. Uh, and each week in this series, what we've done is introduce you to a site that's included on the itinerary for our trips, and then I've unpacked a bit of what I want to unpack at that site. Uh, the good news, if you're joining us for the first time and you're intrigued by the concept, is that due to Al Gore's miraculous invention of the internet, you can actually go back and listen to all the talks in this series if you have like a month to spare. <laughs> uh, on demand for free forever or at least until we decide to take them down. So uh, if you missed them and you want to pass them along to a friend or whatever, you can catch up online. Anyway, with our time today, I get to introduce you to what is truly one of the most beautiful sites in all of Israel. It's the ruins of what was once a large Roman city on the Mediterranean called Caesarea Maritima, or Caesarea by the Sea. Here's a map that illustrates where it is in relation to the rest of the country. Uh, Caesarea was built uh, before the time of Jesus, a generation before, by a man named Herod the Great, who was Israel's king at the time, and he built it in order to control trade in the region. In fact, historians record that the site that Herod chose for the city was incredibly strategic. Israel had never had a decent port along its coastline because it was filled with swamps. And so Herod recognized the potential for profit, drained the land, and built a stunning Roman metropolis. Here's an artist's rendering I found online um, of the city's ceremonial center to show you what I mean. Now, without question, the most striking feature of Caesarea in the ancient world was its harbor. In fact, at the time it was constructed, it was the largest artificial harbor the world had ever seen. It could hold up to 300 ships, and its entrance was marked by a 240-foot-tall lighthouse. Uh, in order for it to be constructed, Herod's engineers had to figure out how to pour concrete 80 feet thick, 100 feet underwater. And again, this is before the time of Jesus, over 2,000 years ago. Needless to say, it was a project of breathtaking complexity. In addition to the harbor, uh, the city featured what you would find in any significant Roman city. There were temples, there was a theater, and there was something called a hippodrome, which is like a stadium that could seat somewhere around 12,000 people. And finally, uh, Herod built for himself at Caesarea a royal palace that was constructed on a peninsula jutting out into the Mediterranean. And this palace on the peninsula featured, wait for it, an Olympic-sized freshwater swimming pool on a peninsula jutting into a large body of salt water. And I don't care who you are, that is pretty 
amazing, right? Uh, anyway, in order to provide uh, potable water for the city, Herod commissioned the construction of 10 miles of Roman aqueducts, uh, the last stretch of which, as it approaches the city, you can actually visit when you go today. And it makes a great shot on Instagram. Would you agree, right? Yeah, there's even a legendary story that records that right before the city was completed, Herod was returning from a trip to Rome by sea and he saw the city of Caesarea in the distance and he looked at a few of his leaders that were surrounding him and said, you know, it's not beautiful enough. Cover the whole thing with marble. And they did. <laughs> In fact, when you visit today and you walk the beaches of Caesarea, there are countless pieces of broken marble. And my illustrious co-leader, Randy Wasink, you know this guy, right, uh, may or may not have a chunk of the aforementioned marble on his office windowsill that I may or may not have brought for him the last time I visited Caesarea. But you didn't hear that from me. Uh, the Israeli Antiquities Authority do not look so kindly on matters such as these. So anyway... Uh, in its day, Caesarea was so incredible that it was even mentioned in the writings of a Jewish historian named Josephus. So he lived in the first century. Here's what he recorded about a city he had seen with his own eyes. He says, although the location was generally unfavorable, Herod contended with the difficulties so well that the solidity of the construction could not be overcome by the sea and its beauty seemed finished off without impediment. And so the city in its day was absolutely amazing, but I would love to show you what it looks like should you visit today. So I came up with a 20-second video of some drone footage to give you a sense of that. So let's watch this together. Now, I absolutely love visiting Caesarea Maritima, not only to enjoy its stunning views of the Mediterranean, but also and really specifically because it really is the perfect place to reflect on a powerful image leveraged repeatedly by the authors of the New Testament to describe the Christian life. It's an image that, as you will soon see, is best appreciated while seated in Caesarea's Hippodrome. So here's a shot of what it looks like should you sit there today. Uh, the Hippodrome, again, was a stadium, and they would do horse races and chariot races and human races around the ring of the Hippodrome. And for hundreds of years, people all over the Roman world would gather in stadiums like this to observe athletic competitions and to cheer for their favorite champions. Uh, the most famous of the athletic competitions was, of course, the Olympic Games. And it's worth noting that to people in the first century, the point of the competition, and the higher the level of the competition, the more significant uh, the image. But the point of the competition wasn't just entertainment. Um, they had been taught that as the athletes competed, as the athletes ran, they were publicly proclaiming their devotion to their gods. 
Moreover, the athletes had been taught that the harder they trained and the faster they ran, the more honor they brought to whichever god it was that they worshipped. So this is kind of a first century version of the chariots of fire thing. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Remember that one? Some of you are millennials and you're like, don't know what that is. Okay, you need to look it up. Chariots of Fire, great movie. You'll probably cry. Anyway, uh, by the time of Jesus, this thinking that the athletes ran in order to honor their favorite God had become so prevalent and so powerful in the Roman world that the Roman emperors, the leaders of the Roman Empire, decided to leverage it for their own benefit. And beginning with a man named Caesar Augustus, who you may recall was on the throne in Rome when Jesus was born, the Roman emperors declared themselves to be divine and instructed Roman athletes to compete to honor and show their devotion to them. Interestingly enough, because the Olympic Games were the ultimate competition and they were so incredibly culturally significant, uh, historians have done an incredible job of documenting the specifics of how the Olympic Games unfolded. And for the next few minutes, what I want to do is nerd out a little bit. I know that's a shock with me. It happens every once in a while, right? I want to nerd out a bit and share some of what they recorded for us. And if you don't love history, please just hang with me. There is a method to what I'm about to do. You'll see why this matters to you and I. Uh, 2,000 years later. All right, so historians record that just prior to the start of an ancient Olympic competition, the mood in the Hippodrome would be absolutely electric. Thousands of fans would have crammed into the stands, eager to enjoy the competition, and perhaps to catch a glimpse of the most powerful man in their world, the one in whose honor the games were held. Well, at the appointed time, the Roman emperor would enter wearing the white robe and the purple sash and the golden crown of a Greek god. And the crowd would stand to their feet and erupt in cheers as he made his way to a throne in the royal box located, of course, at the 50-yard line of the stadium, right? It wasn't really the 50-yard line, but you get my drift. There's no cheap seats if you're Caesar, okay? Anyway, at this point, a herald would stand and unroll an official-looking scroll and begin to speak. Uh, He would address the crowd and say something like, these are the words of the divine supreme Caesar, And at this, um, as his words rung out, a hush would fall over the crowd and then the herald would continue to speak and he would read the people a message from their emperor which would detail what the people had been doing right and what the people had been doing wrong and also what they could expect as reward or punishment as a result of their actions. They were reminded that their emperor knew their deeds even without deploying an army of elf-on-the-shelf assistants. Oh, come on. I've been waiting all week for that. That's like, you know, you know, the whole Santa elf on the shelf. Never mind. You can look it up later. Okay. Okay. So um, following this commendation or correction, the emperor would be worshipped. So 24 priests from the local cults would gather around his throne. They too would be dressed in white and wearing golden crowns, which they would remove and lay at the feet of the emperor as they bowed before him. And as they knelt, they would begin to chant praises to their king. They'd they'd say things like, Great are you, Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive power and honor and glory. You are Lord of lords, the God of all things, and the Savior of eternity. And I just imagine they would say, And you're so humble 
No, not really. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, after an extended period of worship, the time would come for the competition to begin. And the emperor would hold up a scroll himself that was sealed with an official seal that contained the official proclamation that would be opened prior to the start of the first event. And, and it was common knowledge that, that the emperor alone, that he alone, was worthy to break the seal on the scroll and to initiate the contests. Well, after that seal on the scroll was broken, the athletes would enter the hippodrome and they would parade around the arena dressed in white. And eventually they would assemble before the emperor's throne, before that box right in the center near the 50-yard line. And they would have palm branches in their hands and they would pledge their lives to the God of the games, publicly declaring that in their running, in their competing, they desired to show their world the greatness of their emperor. Now, with all that as a background, I want to show you a few passages from what to many Christians is the most mysterious book in the New Testament of the Bible. And a few of you are already ahead of me on this one. It's called Revelation. And it was originally a letter written by a pastor by the name of John who had been one of Jesus' first disciples. And the letter we call Revelation was originally addressed to seven churches that were under his care. Churches that are located in what is today uh, the western coast of Turkey. And at the time of John's writing, Christians in the region were experiencing unprecedented persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. At least in part due to their unwillingness to worship the emperor as a god. Well, in this letter, John relays a powerful message of hope to the people he served by describing a vision that he had received recently from Jesus. It's a vision that after what we just described in our nerdy historical aside, uh, you'll notice contains elements that may sound a bit familiar. Here's what John writes. He says, in this vision, before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. He says, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were, were 24 elders. And you can just imagine like the original people to hear this immediately would have caught what was going on. Like, okay, the, okay there's, there's other th 24. And, okay, he goes on. He says, uh, they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. And as John continues to write, he records that at regular intervals, he says the 24 elders would fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. He says they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, he says, for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. If you keep reading, a few verses later, John gives us a little bit more. He says, I, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. He says, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And he continues, and unto the Lamb. So he says, who's on the throne? Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the conquering one. 
Jesus is seated on the throne and everyone is bowing before Jesus and pledging their faith and worshiping Jesus. Now you've already caught this, right? But John's audience could not have missed the connection between John's vision and the Olympic Games. Many of these people would have seen the games with their own eyes. I mean, they grew up in this Greco-Roman culture. They would have seen the games in all their glory and all their majesty and all their honor and frankly, all their idolatry. And uh, many of these people, not only having seen the games themselves, many of these, these Christians, these early Christians, would have suffered terribly as a result of their unwillingness to bend their knee to a human ruler who demanded to be worshipped as a god. In fact, uh, the area in which John pastored was the world headquarters or the neo-chorus for the worship of the Roman emperor. It was impossible to be a Christian living in Asia Minor in the first century. Moreover, many of these people would have experienced moments where they wondered if it was worth it because of the persecution, because of the complexity, because of the pain, because they were cast out of organized society. They say, so, so John writes to them. These people that would have been wondering, is it worth it? John writes to share a vision of a reality beyond what they could see with their eyes. A reality in which the identity of the one who really is in control of life and death, the one who really and truly is worthy of worship, their risen Savior Jesus Christ, was revealed. John wanted them to know that by looking there, beyond the trials and struggles of this life, they could find hope. Because John would say, he alone is worthy. In fact, as John continues to unpack his vision, he points forward to the day in the future when everything will be made new again and when God's kingdom will come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that were, they were a people who would have been longing for that day. Everything in their world seemed to go off the rails and they were like, John, where do we look for hope? He says, you look beyond what you're experiencing right now to that day in the future when everything will be made right. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So John says you need to look beyond your day to the day when everything will be finally how God intended it to be. All right, now, um, as incredible as all of that is, and it, it, it is, I remember the first time I experienced it, I was just like, this is, wow, um, it would be fair to ask what all of that has to do with you and me halfway around the world 2,000 years later. Uh, because fortunately, we don't live in a world where emperors claim to be gods on earth and demand to be worshipped. So what are we supposed to take away from this teaching? And, and I'm convinced the answer to that question can be found elsewhere in the letters that make up the New Testament because well, once you're looking for it, you start to see that images from the Olympic Games are repeatedly leveraged by early pastors to describe what it meant to live a life that honors God, to live the life of faith, to live the Christian life. Here's, here's what I mean. Remember that people in the Roman world understood that the point of the athletic competitions was to declare to the world that Caesar was Lord and God. And so to these same people, the New Testament authors write letters on which they imagine a follower of Jesus as a runner in the Olympic Games. 
someone who runs not for fun and not for sport, but in order to say to the world that Jesus is Lord and God. Uh, Let me show you an example uh, to show you what I mean. The author of the New Testament letter we call Hebrews, which was originally addressed to Jewish Christians, uh, he describes it this way. He says, uh, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And he says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and protector of our faith. So he says to another group of Christians who are experiencing persecution because of their faith in Christ, another group of Christians who are likely tempted to just sort of rock back and say, I don't know if this is worth it. He says, listen, you need to run the race that's marked out for you and keep your eyes on Jesus. In other words, uh, the author of Hebrews writes to remind these early Christians that once you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, once you believe that his death on the cross and his blood that was spilled brought you peace with God, you you embrace that, you believe that, at that very moment, you, in a very real sense, become God's Olympian. And, And to be clear, you got into the race because of grace, not because you earned it, not because you were good enough. It was his goodness and not your goodness that initially got you onto the track. But uh, once again, in the games, the author of Hebrews wants to remind the people under his care that now that you're in the games and you don't have to do anything to stay in the games, again, it's grace that got you in the games and it's grace that keeps you in the games. But once you're in the games, it's like you need to run. He wants to remind the people that he's writing to that God wants them to live an active, passionate, relentless life of faith, a life of giving and serving and loving and forgiving for all the world to see. They are to run. The Christian life is not meant to be experienced as an extended time seated in heaven's waiting room. He would say it's more like a marathon. And that takes intentionality, and that takes training, and that takes discipline, and that takes pressing through opposition and turning your back on the sin that distracts you and keeps you from the life that God created you to live. It means that you're going to do hard things for the glory of God, things that cost you time, things that cost you your resources. It's almost like if you think about it, to a people experiencing external pressure, because of their faith in Jesus at the hands of the Roman Empire, and to a people experiencing internal pressures because of the sin that they choose to indulge in their own life, to a people who may feel tempted to rest in the grace they've received through faith in Jesus, and not to passionately embody the way of Jesus for the world to see, to these people, like a good coach, the author of Hebrews pulls them into a locker room of words. And in a sense, sort of screams at them. He screams at them to remind them. He says, listen, you've got to run. It's like, don't stop. Don't quit. The world in which you live needs help. And the world in which you live needs truth. And the only way that they see it is when they see it in you. And so the world needs you to be as much like Jesus as as humanly possible. So run. For his glory, so that his light shines through your life. And that people start to see beyond 
what this world has to offer into what is ultimately true, that there is a better way. And the way came among us and modeled a different sort of life for us that begins with accepting grace and then is lived out actively as we pursue a relationship with Jesus as we start to look more and more like him. Well, that's not the only place that you see this image in the New Testament. Um, in another letter, this one originally addressed to Christians living in Greece, a pastor named Paul expands a bit on the running image. Here's, here's what he says. Um, he begins with this. He says, do you not know? And whenever you're reading one of Paul's letters and he says, do you not know? The reason he's asking, do you not know, is he's not sure they knew. <laughs> Thanks, right? Do you not know? He says that in a race, all the runners run but only one runs to get the prize. And he says, run in such a way as to get the prize. And just notice, he doesn't say run to make sure you get the prize. He says, run like you want the prize. Like run, put, give it everything you've got. And then he keeps going. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will last forever. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. What's interesting, it, we would say uh, they discipline themselves. They discipline their mind. They discipline their body. They say no to some things that they want to do because they want to say yes to this higher goal. Uh, they see it as um, an investment in their future and not a sacrifice in the moment, right? But it, we, we call it, it's discipline. It's discipline. And here's what's interesting. In the Greek, the word for discipline and the word for disciple are the same root word. To be a disciple of Jesus is to discipline yourself to live life like Jesus tells you to live life. So Paul writes, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They discipline themselves and they do it in order to get a crown that will last forever. And in other words, Paul says, listen, um, run as if you want to win. Don't let up. Don't for a moment think your faith is to be a passive exercise. Do what you know you need to do. Stop telling God later. He's been prompting you to make some changes that are keeping you from running the race that he has for you to run. It's like, stop telling him to get to it later. Get down to business. Do it now. Get rid of the sin in your life. He says, you got to remember, the world is watching. And the world needs to know the truth. So get moving. It's like he wants to say to him, like, again, like the coach in the locker room words, Paul writes, like, leave it all on the track. Don't hold anything back when you get to the end of your life and stand before the Lord of the games. You want to be able to say to him that you gave it all and you have nothing left. And Paul actually models this in a letter written near the end of his life. Paul writes that he's fought the good fight, he's finished the race, and he's kept the faith. He's like, don't give up. There's way too much at stake, both for you and for the world. Because God doesn't intend the Christian life to be a spectator sport. He wants you loving and giving and serving and forgiving in a way that shows the sort of difference he can make in a life. It's better for you and it's better for the world. So Paul would say, run. 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 That's a powerful message in the world today. When all too often, if we're honest, followers of Jesus are tempted to sort of, we're tempted to crawl through our faith, right? Um, 
we're, we're tempted to just rest in grace. And, and it's not that you can't rest in grace. It's just there's so much more that God wants to do in you and through you. And moreover, the authors of the New Testament are clear. God wants followers of Jesus to live on purpose and to train intentionally and to run. All right, I got to show you one more thing before I let you go, because honestly, it's so cool. I just can't not share it. I, I, I cut it and then I uncut it. So there you go, right? So, yeah. So the first passage that I showed you um, from Hebrews, I don't know if you caught it, but the author of Hebrews writes, um, he says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run. So since, in other words, he's like, if you think about it, um, the witnesses are like the people in the stands that are watching you run. And you say, well, okay, is that, like, is that like the world? And you say, well, sure, the world is watching us run. But I think there's, there's something else going on here. Uh, this is found in Hebrews chapter 12, as you can see. Um, if you said to me, you know, what's in Hebrews chapter 11? Not that you would, but if you did, right? What's in chapter 11? Here's what's in chapter 11. It's a list of the heroes of the biblical narrative. People like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Rahab, and Gideon, and David, and Samuel. Again, Hebrews is written to Jewish people, so it was like the heroes of the Old Testament, the people who ran. Everybody knew it, right? And, and, and I think what the author of Hebrews wants us to imagine is those great men and women of the Bible, those great men and women of faith as people in the stands. And they've finished their races, and now they're sitting in the stands watching us run. And it just, if you, if you go here with me, it's like they're, they're saying things like, you can do this. Don't slow down. Don't quit. He's worthy. He's worth it. Push and run. Don't let up. And, and, and as, as compelling an, an image as that is, I don't even think it's too much of a stretch to imagine the people who've lived for Jesus in your life in the stands for you. Uh, maybe it was a grandparent or a parent, or a coach, or a friend who inspired you on your faith journey. Maybe it was the one who first introduced you to Jesus in a way that was real and that you embraced it for yourself. And now they've come to the end of their race. But it's almost like the author of Hebrews would say to us, like, listen, what if you imagine them cheering you on as well? I mean, I don't know theologically if they can see you. That's not, that's not really the point. But, but what if you imagine them in the stands cheering you on as you ran, telling you not to quit, even, even when things get hard, even when it feels impossible, even when everything in you is like, it's not worth it. They would say, no, push on, press on. It is worth your every effort. But because the one for whom you run is worth it. Now, I don't know where this teaching finds you today. Um, perhaps it's been years since you thought of your faith as an adventure. If you're honest, you're like, well, you know, I go to church, and I like that, and then we go to Panera afterwards, and that's good too, and that's good, it's good, right? And that, you know, and that it's normal and natural in our culture. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're just like, I've never really thought about that, and I need to. Um, perhaps um, you've been beaten up by sinful choices in your life, and you feel like you've disqualified yourself from the race of faith. And if that's you... Just let me remind you one more time. You don't get onto the field because of your own worthiness. You get onto the field because of grace. And after receiving that gift of grace, then God wants to begin to work a new sort of life 
in you. Uh, the theological term, there's salvation, where you accept grace and you get on the field. And then there's sanctification, the process by which you learn to live a life like the one God designed you to live. You live a life led by the Holy Spirit. You live a life that looks more and more like Jesus. So maybe, 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 that's, maybe that's you. And, and maybe perhaps you're here and, or you're watching online and you, you would just confess, like, you've grown weary and you've grown cynical because of the enormity of the problems in our world that need to be addressed. And you're like, I just, I don't know. I, I just don't know if all of this pushing and pressing and leaning and loving and giving and serving and forgiving, I just, I don't know if it's making a difference. And, that, and, that's, and that's fair. That's fair as well. It's easy to get cynical in our world. Or, or perhaps, you know, you've never understood that Jesus intends his followers to think of the Christian life as a race that is to be Run. So a whole bunch of different places this teaching might intersect you. But whatever understanding you carried into today, it's my hope that this image of your life of faith as a race that is to be run would haunt you in all sorts of wonderful ways like it haunts me. And whether or not you literally like to run, and more than a few of us would say, I am not running. That's okay. Like running is a metaphor. We got that. Some of you are like, I don't even have the right shoes. You know, right? I understand. I got you. I got you there, right? But th th this idea would haunt you in all sorts of wonderful ways. And that each day you would wake up in the morning and remind yourself that the Christian life is not to be a spectator sport. It's to be a race that's run. And so you would get up in the morning and you would put on sort of, you know, your running shoes, the shoes of your faith, and you would engage life saying, okay, God, I don't know what you have for me today. I don't know who you have me to love, who you have me to intersect with, who you want me to encourage, who you want me to sacrifice for, but I want my eyes to be open because that's what it looks like to run. And I don't want a day to go by where I'm not making this world a little bit more like you want it to be. Because I want to get to the end of my life and stand before the Lord of the games and to say, to be able to say authentically, I gave it my all. If you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and online I'll close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning because you are worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the worship and all the praise. Thank you for the grace that allows us to be in the games. Thank you for the grace that never lets us go. And thank you as well for this challenge this challenge that a life of faith is to be lived out loud for all the world to see. I pray that as this, this picture, as this image haunts us all, uh, we would all take steps in small ways to make this world a little bit more like you desire it to be. And so we thank you, we bless you, we honor you, we worship you in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Next week, friends, we shall gather again for a new series. A little something to look forward to. All right, have a great week. We'll see you soon.